0: Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game
1: of Thrones begins this Sunday, which means binge-mode Game of Thrones makes its long-awaited return with your resident experts Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion guiding you through each episode. And to get your fix every Sunday night, Chris Ryan joins Mallory and Jason on Talk the Thrones, a Twitter after-show recapping each episode throughout the season. So make sure you check out the binge mode podcast on Apple or Spotify, Talk the Thrones on Twitter, and for even more Thrones coverage, you can head to theRinger.com. Uh, he's got smoke
0: coming off his fingertips. He's as hot as a. Book.
1: Welcome to a very special playoff edition of Heat Check. I'm your host, John Gonzalez in Philadelphia, joined all the way across the country in Los Angeles by our esteemed producer, Isaac Lee. Isaac, it's very late here in Philadelphia. Uh huh. What day is it there? Is it still Sunday there? Because it's Monday <laughs> morning here.
2: You are in the future. It is uh, yes. it is Sunday here. You are already in Monday.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I've moved across the timelines uh, and the days and the calendar per usual, like we did for last year's Heat Check podcast because it's the playoffs and because there's a lot of action happening and because we want to deliver all of that news to you sooner. Heat Check listeners, what we will be doing moving forward is recording Sunday nights. And then that way you get it first thing Monday morning. Everybody wins that way except for my sleep. My sleep does not win, but everybody else wins. Uh, Sorry for your loss. It's a very exciting time though, Isaac, because we are in the postseason. It was a crazy start to the proceedings and uh, we've got a lot to get into. But first I want to thank everybody for listening and uh, encourage everybody to please rate and review us and all of our fantastic ringer NBA shows and pods. And don't forget about all of our great content on the ringer.com. We've got Haley and Paolo who had all your winners and losers from the weekend. One of the teams I like to cover, they fall into the latter category, the loser category. And I wrote about the Sixers face-planting Isaac Lee in game one Mm. against the Nets. It was not good. Such a shame. I was there. I flew out for this and uh, probably could have just stayed in LA and watched the Clippers. It would have been easier. Uh, (laughs) Later in the show, for the first time ever, we are going to have Spike Eskin from the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast on the program to break down the Sixers game one debacle. And then later on after that, we're going to have Kevin Clark on the show to crow about his Orlando Magic winning in dramatic fashion in Toronto against the Raptors. But first, there's six other games. We've got a ton of other games to get through. Jazz and Rockets just wrapped up. We've got a whole bunch of other games that happened on Sunday. And for that, we need to bring in an expert, and we have a good one. Let's hit it.
0: He's heating up. He's on
1: fire. All right, joining me on the other line, he's the senior NBA editor in charge of our wonderful NBA coverage at theringer.com. He's also the host of Group Chat on Thursdays. Justin Barrier, thanks for doing this, man. Gentlemen, how are you? Good. It was a long weekend of playoff basketball. You said you were on your couch the whole time. Yeah, you watched every game?
3: Yeah, I uh, there's a dip in the center of my couch because I'm often on it watching basketball, but now it is officially a <laughs> crater uh, because I haven't left my house more than maybe two
1: times to see the sunlight. I I respect that. You worked a nice groove into your couch. It's basketball season. Basketball season never stops. Now we're in the playoffs. So we have many games to discuss. We're going to carve out two games later on in the program. We're going to talk to Kevin Clark about uh, his Orlando Magic upending the Raptors. And we're going to talk to Spike Askin about the Sixers going down in abject fashion to the Magic. But you and I are going to do all the other games. We're just going to roll through all the games that happened not related to those two people. So we'll start with uh, Sunday and work from the beginning backwards. So the Pacers and the Celtics, I missed this game because I was at Sixers practice, but when I checked in on the box score later on, uh, it didn't look great. And you said there was a lot of blood. Yeah,
3: definitely in that third quarter. Uh, I was worried about the Celtics early on, especially given all the upsets that we had on Saturday. I thought this was veering toward that and Given what we know about the Celtics, they're not perhaps the most mentally uh, strong team out there to perhaps prevent something like that from happening. But whether it was a combination of their defense or the Pacers going through what was like a historic shooting drought, (laughs) it just completely snowballed. I think they ended up with only two field goals in that third quarter for eight points,
1: and I believe one of them was a goaltend. It's incredible. Uh, The Pacers were up 11 in the first half. As you mentioned, they had an awful second half, just eight points in the third quarter, 29 points total after the break. 29 points, according to our very own Zach Cram, is tied for the fourth worst half this season. And uh, this particular game, Justin Verrier, I can only imagine your eyes bleeding watching it. Lowest scoring combined score of the NBA this season.
3: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You really you really missed something here.
1: <laughs> I was at uh Sixers practice like I said and uh we had to wait for a while because I th- I'm I can't be certain on this, but I'm pretty sure. I'm going to take a, an educated guess that the media veil was um postponed or at least, you know, we had to wait a little bit longer than otherwise we would have because I think that they were watching Tiger win the Masters. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> that, think the
3: it, Warriors did do that.
1: We were definitely doing it while we waited. We were just sitting on the sideline watching the Masters, so congrats to Tiger. This was, uh, for the Pacers, I think like kind of what we expected because without Victor Oladipo, it's been rough for them to score. They only had two players in double digits in this game, one of whom was Bogdanovich, and then off the bench, you had Corey Joseph lead the way with 14 points. They just have a really hard time scoring, and the Celtics, on top of that, good defensive team.
3: Yeah, they're not a three-point shooting team either. And if you don't have like a talent advantage, I think that's what you're probably going to have to rely on. I think they took the second fewest three-pointers in the league since Victor Oladipo went down. And if you look at the shot chart from that very bloody third quarter, it's pretty much all like three-point misses and long two misses. So I want to say that the Celtics did something right. On the other hand, there's just like so much noise here that it's such an extreme result that... Like to miss all of these shots that I do wonder like how much of it was just like a giant tidal wave of like comeuppance or just like law of averages and all this stuff. There's just like I'm still trying to figure things out about this result. But I guess the big takeaway writ large is just that the Celtics were the more talented team and they played like it and they got the job done.
1: Yeah. 82 games. I've mentioned this so many times on heat check that like, I still don't know what to make of the Boston Celtics. We have 82 regular season games and now a playoff game. And I still don't know, uh, shouts to my buddy, Jason Schwartz at SI who tweeted this out. He said three straight years, people crap on Al Horford during the regular season, three straight years, the Celtics entire playoff success depends on surviving when Al is on the bench. I don't know if that's sad or funny or some combination of both, but they got through. They got the Pacers in the first round. I think that's good for them. That's enough of the the Pacers and and the Celtics. All right, so OKC and the Blazers. Much better game. Much more enjoyable for you, yes? Unless
3: you're Paul George, I guess it was enjoyable. He just looked terrible, and it's really sad to watch.
1: Blazers hold on and win that one at home. The Blazers social media team tweeted, this one's for you, Jennifer, which I I enjoyed quite a bit. Shouts to Ian Carmel, who got a victory on this one. OKC cut the lead to one with under three left, and then like Dame hit this really deep three-pointer to put them ahead. And it felt like, like I, I thought that OKC's defense in this game was pretty good, except for in certain instances. And that was one of those instances late in the game where Russ was on Dame, and he just gave him way too much room for that three, and then that was it.
3: Yeah, there were like flashes if, if you want to be an OKC optimist. Uh, yeah. I especially liked Jeremy Grant and what he was doing. It seemed like you came up yeah, with a few too. big defensive stops toward the end there. And we could talk about this in a bit, but I wonder if, like, maybe going to him more in center is like their only counter that they have left in their coffers, given this like really weird lineup that they have. But overall, I just think like it was a kind of a big victory for the Damon CJ backcourt. We've been talking about this for, I don't know, 20 years now, mm-hmm. where it's like, do they have to break up? Do they have enough? And they really found something with this team before Nurkic went down. And so far, it looks like Enes Kanter can do enough to maybe get them by, especially if you look at the like that side of the bracket, now that Houston is in the four seed and has to go against the Warriors in the second round, there's kind of like an open lane for anybody. And I'm starting to convince myself that maybe the Blazers have enough to be that team.
1: I want good things for the Blazers. It was a tough out last year and it would be nice if they uh, put up a better fight this year. Although, OKC had a tough out last year too. So somebody's going to have a repeat of that performance. As you mentioned, Dame played really well. CJ looked good. The Ennis Cantor thing is crazy. Like, all of a sudden, you can play him. Like, I haven't always been very high on Ennis because I feel like, you know, outside of offensive rebounding and rebounding in general scoring in the paint. He doesn't do a ton, but he had 20 and 18 in this game, a couple of box, he had some critical offensive rebounds late. He also had, I'm sure you saw, a ridiculous late layup where he basically picked up his dribble at the three-point line and laid it up anyway well, high off the glass because sure. And uh, afterwards, he was telling reporters that he was on the worst team in the league and he wasn't playing because they thought I was too old. So a little shade to the Knicks. It was Ennis Canders night.
3: Yeah, he was basically Giannis. He did the Giannis, like, go from the big one line and cruise in. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think his, his biggest advantage here is just that he's not Myers Leonard. Because if yeah. you were to watch any of the minutes that Myers Leonard or Zach Collins, my God, they were just atrocious. And I thought that was one place going into the series where the Thunder could expose. They obviously have Steven Adams, probably one of the best centers in the league. And they have some of these bigger, burlier guys. There Noel, another guy where they can really rough him up in the paint. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like Adams is like totally healthy. And it just seems like Cantor, I mean, he's doing enough, even yeah. defensively. He's like passable. It's like not good, but he's enough to where like they have so much firepower that they could really outshoot a team that's going five for 33 from three point land.
1: We talk so much about like opportunity and fit in the NBA and how like some one guy on a certain team might not play well or play much at all. And then all of a sudden he goes to a different team and it just clicks. And not to say that Nurk and Cantor are the same guy. They're certainly not. Nurk has a, a much different and I think like a wider set. He's certainly a better passer, but I do think that Cantor for the Blazers after Nurk went down, it's a good fit. Yeah. I mean,
3: he's just going to get you all these extra possessions and, and like kind of one of these Battles where you're just scrapping things out, especially that's what happened late there. It's it's definitely advantageous. I just I wish the Thunder had another move here. I want to believe in them, and they have certain guys that I really like, Grant being one of them. But I was talking to someone on the staff earlier today, and I'm just like, well, what else can they do here? I think if you really wanted to expose Cantor, you could work it so you have like maybe a Grant Paul George front court, and now. Grant would be fine, but Paul George, what are we getting from him spacing-wise? And then how many like, actual guards and wings does this team have? Like At a certain point, you're getting to playing maybe like Raymond Felton, Dennis Schroeder, <laughs> and Russell Westbrook together, and that's just a whole new set of problems. So the matchups are all screwed up here, and I don't know how much longer the Thunder can really hang.
1: Well, I think that those are all good points. And yet I look at the score and they lost by five in a game in which they only hit five of 33, three point attempts. Like I thought the other night was an absolute brick fest for the Sixers. The Thunder made them look like sharpshooters. They shot 15.2% from distance. Like if they hit even like a normal amount of threes, they are definitely, you know, they were already in this game, but who knows? Maybe they pull it out. Like, do you give them like, is that even a small consolation if you're a Thunder fan?
3: Yeah, I guess it's really eye beholder there. I mean, I think you're right. They can't shoot this poorly again. Dennis Schroeder went 0 for 7, and Russell Westbrook will hit one in every, like, 50. So you're bound to get something from him. I guess it just comes down to they're not a three-point shooting team to begin with, and I do wonder, like, what George's health is. It's really a bummer because you're basically like, can this guy play well enough and it just really comes down to the human body and unfortunately I have no expertise in that
1: yeah it's a shame because you know his line if you just were looking at his his numbers he had 26 points Paul George had 26 points and 10 rebounds and 4 steals and he was 6 of 6 from the line and yet I don't think he looked right either. Like there are just moments where clearly he's not himself. And I don't think he has been for a while. And without him being himself the early season, like at least in the conversation for dark horse MVP candidate, Paul George, where he was killing it and carrying them. It's going to be tough for them. I think.
3: Yeah. I, he still was a pretty spry on defense, which I guess is, is something, but yeah. it reminded me of like, you know, when a defensive lineman like breaks his hand and just wears a club, he's he's basically like a specialist out there he's basically a jason pierre paul with like one hand
1: yeah he's got well it looks like they took all of the black masking tape on the planet and like taped up his shoulders it's like he's part man part masking tape it's really impressive he's like a dothraki Uh, he is yeah i haven't don't spoil it for me i've been watching basketball i didn't say it um okay so on to uh, another game here. We had Pistons at Bucks. I want to spend mere seconds on this one. This was the worst game I have seen in quite some time, unless you're a Bucks fan, at which point you were super excited about it. The Bucks had 69 points in the first half alone, absolutely blew the Pistons out. The game was really over before it even began because no Blake.
3: Yeah, I, I guess the only thing to be encouraged by if you're a Pistons fan is it can't possibly get worse. I guess. There's really not much else to say because almost every player was bad and even Andre Drummond got tossed at a certain point.
1: Yeah, I was wondering about that. That was such a blatant shove. But you know how like sometimes when games are going really badly, a coach or a player wants to get tossed? I wonder how much of that was in Andre Drummond's mind because that that game was over from the beginning. Maybe he just wanted to go into the back and say, forget it. But no Blake being out there. When Dwayne Casey said at the end of the regular season that he was excited that Blake was on the court playing basically on one leg and diving for balls with like this bulky knee brace, and he also said he couldn't hurt it any worse by playing on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe he shouldn't have said that and and possibly regrets that now.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm also not encouraged by the fact that like they haven't really said what the injury is. As far as I know, it's just like soreness, which to me is always like we're not going to tell you what the actual thing is until after the playoffs and oh my God, maybe he needs to lose a leg.
1: Yeah, right. They're going to have to amputate or, or uh, leg transplant for sure. Um, last quick thing about this, aside from the fact that it was ugly basketball and I was just desperate for it to be over so we could get to the last game of the night. The starting five for the Detroit Pistons had 35 points, 21 rebounds and eight assists. Giannis alone had 24, 17 and four and was also caught like mouthing. I'm fucking unstoppable, which he is. Yeah, it was a, it was a really cool afternoon. Yeah. Wait, by the way, this is the only criticism I have of the Bucs for this game because they absolutely destroyed the Pistons. They looked incredible. They played well together. Everybody was clicking. They were shooting well. They were moving the ball well. They were playing good defense. Explain to me why Giannis was playing in the third quarter up 40 and was in the game and able to be shoved by Andre Drummond. Like, Why not take him out way before that?
3: I know. This is such a like reporter thing it is. to ask of coaches, and they always hate it. I definitely got yelled at by Alvin Gentry once for doing so. Yeah, I I don't know. There's no real reason to, other than like maybe because they have days off in between, multiple days off. Like they need a certain amount of minutes. But yeah, if Giannis goes down, like they're definitely exposed. I mean, that's pretty obvious to say. But like in addition to that, like a lot of their players are also also ailing from injuries. You know, they got Nikola Miritich back, but they're still waiting on Brogdon, still waiting on a few other guys. It's the best possible scenario, but, like, there are, I guess, lingering doubts that they'll get to in later rounds after they just completely annihilate the Pistons here.
1: Yeah, I think, like, you know, if I'm Bud, maybe there's a case to be made for, hey, you know, we really want to assert ourselves. We're the best team during the regular season. Let's come out and just put it on them. And, like, if Giannis wants to play, let him play. But, you know, yeah, if he gets hurt in that scenario, you'll never hear the end of it, and rightly so. But with a healthy Giannis, this feels like an easy sweep. For the Bucs and, uh, you know, the Pistons made it in the playoffs, and I guess good for them. Uh, the last game of today that just wrapped, Jazz lose to the Houston Rockets. There were moments, like right after the first half, where it felt like the Jazz might kind of maybe climb back into the game, and then they just definitely did not.
3: Yeah, I, was, uh, I definitely earmarked this series as the one I was most interested in, just because Me the too. Jazz always do this. Where they come on late in the season, and whether it's schedule or just like their defense finally figuring it out, but all the analytics just love them, and we just think of them as a sleeping giant. You got to give respect to the Jazz. Their fans are always very vocal about that. But if anything, that's just confirmed how damn good like James Harden is, and how good I think the rest of the Rockets are at playing around Harden.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the jazz are obviously a very defense first team. And that's one of the reasons why, like you, I was intrigued by this series to see, you know, here's the jazz, maybe this year, Rudy Gobert doesn't get dragged out to the three point line and uh, they figure out some answer for it. And now all of a sudden, like defense versus offense and styles make fights. And this could be interesting and not really like the jazz had no answer, not surprisingly. And and like in their defense, it's nobody's had an answer for James Harden for years now and certainly not for the last two, but he basically got anywhere he wanted on the floor. He hurt them in every possible way that he wanted. And I have a hard time seeing the Jazz, one, figure out a way to ha- how to stop Harden. And then two, where do they get extra offense from?
3: Yeah, yeah. I I don't know what, what the Jazz can really put out there, especially when you have Harden cooking like this. It It was really fun to watch because they were pretty much at a certain point just selling out in order to try to stop him. And like, which is impossible to begin with because he's now not only like just stepping back into three-pointers, he's like full-on like, Leaping away yeah. from a defender, so it's like I don't know how you keep up with that. But he was also doing a really good job of like finding guys like PJ Tucker in the corner and Clint Capella, who's getting really good, just like kind of like timing off these lobs. And like the one advantage you expected the Jazz to have is guys like Rudy Gobert, like kind of getting into the paint. But it seemed like early on, in particular, the Rockets were doing a good job of like keeping Gobert from even getting into the paint. Like they were pretty much trying to wall him off, so they didn't have that advantage. And so I wonder if the kind of like sneaky advantage the Rockets have here is actually on the defensive end because like since they've gotten their full allotment of guys, they've just kind of been incredible on that end.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the box score as we speak here and not surprisingly, the first five for the Jazz had to play really heavy minutes. And then after that, Quinn Snyder's options get Really ugly, really fast. You got twenty minutes out of Jay Crowder. You had to play Thabo fifteen, O'Neal fifteen. Uh Neto was out there for a little over ten, as was Kyle Corver. Like those aren't good options for them. I just don't know how they can. I don't think they have enough for a lot of reasons, but specifically because uh, they're just thin.
3: Yeah, I mean Ricky is always kind of the the inflection point for them. He does some things defensively, but it didn't seem like he was much of a turn against Harden. So. A, it didn't really help. But then offensively, he's going to just give so much away. It's, they're still super reliant on Donovan Mitchell, and he'll come in flashes. But if Gobert is not going to be dominating Gobert, I makes him sound like he's a goker um, <laughs> If he's not going to like be able to have his effect down in the paint, it really just like has this trickle-down effect. And uh, it just seems like everything was kind of springing from this offensive success that the Rockets had. And, uh, they weren't able to count. I mean, at a certain point, it also just becomes a track meet. And they really don't have the horses to go up against a team that's going to put up 41 three-pointers in just a regular old game one.
1: Numbers wise, you know, like Gobert's numbers don't look terrible here. He had a double double. He he made all of his free throws and yet he was a minus 23 in the game. And I think he just like got outplayed by Capella in a lot of ways, but we'll see if the jazz can get back into it. I'm not optimistic about this. If you asked me before the series, I definitely would have picked the Rockets in, you know, five or six, but maybe maybe the jazz will surprise us. Um, All right. So for the first day of the playoffs, we had the Clippers and the Warriors. Isaac, how much do you want to talk about this one? (laughs) <laughs> um, let's just I, say- I defer to you because I don't want to hurt your feelings here you get one of those like uh, participation trophies for this series yeah. and for the season and like I, th- I think as we s- House and I told you it's all gravy from here on Listen, out but not the best effort yeah this
2: is always going to be a sweep and I've said this if you don't have hope you can't be disappointed so um, there's that it was a great season. I was glad to convey a low pick uh, in a top-heavy draft instead of <laughs> next year or, or the year after. But uh, you know, more importantly, we're rooting against the Raptors, so Kawhi doesn't stay there. And that's really where my playoff loyalties lie, is whoever is facing the Raptors better play well so that Kawhi
1: comes to the Clippers over the summer. That's a big win for you. Uh, Justin, what did you think about, and Steve Kerr wasn't thrilled about this, but late in the game when it was obviously over and Patrick Beverly was just being a nudge and trying to annoy the hell out of them. He won in that he got KD to fall for it and they both got a double technical when it really didn't matter. And Kerr afterwards said that they took the bait. What'd you think of KD falling for that?
3: Listen, it wasn't a good move for Kevin Durant, who has to play, as Isaac was alluding to, several more playoff games than Patrick Beverly will uh, in these playoffs. On the other hand, I thought it was the most endearing moment for Kevin Durant in probably a calendar year, maybe since winning the finals MVP. Uh, And you definitely heard it from the crowd as he kind of went off into the tunnel as a result of that. It just seemed like we need reasons to get behind Kevin Durant and like kind of standing up to Patrick Beverly was like one of the few times where I was like, okay, this guy is not just like some weird internet troll.
1: Well, how do you feel about Patrick Beverly? Because I, I he's definitely a divisive figure. I kind of like how relentlessly continually annoying he is. It's like endearing to me in a way.
3: Yeah. I mean, he's he's the type of guy you love if he's on your team. I guess I have a certain like affinity for the Clippers just because, like, when I first moved out here, I spent a lot of time at those games. And so I'm like, all right, I could definitely see the uh, effect he has on a team. And there's so many young guys on that team that seem to take their kind of their orders from him at the same time, probably a little more bark than bite at this point of his career. But I guess if you're not going to beat them playing actual basketball, you have to muck it up. I don't know. I'm not super offended by it, but I don't necessarily
1: love it. A lot more bark for sure. The Clippers, not many bites in this one. Isaac, it was fun. It was fun. Three more to go, buddy. It was uh, great last, while we one, had <laughs> it. last one, the one that I actually am very interested in. If I had to pick another series out West that I thought would be intriguing, it was the Spurs and the Nuggets. And this is something that we've talked about on this program quite a bit, which was I was wondering about what the, like, depending on matchup, how the Nuggets would respond in the playoffs because I love their season. They're super deep. Jokic had a great year. He took that step forward. And yet I was wondering after Jokic, what happens if he gets taken away? Who's going to step up? Because it's one thing to have depth in the regular season and just rattle off these wins. It's another one you need a bucket in a big game. And sure enough, San Antonio Spurs got it. Derek White played great. The Nuggets, they lose at home. They're one of three teams that got upended at home by the underdog. And now all of a sudden the Spurs you know, here they come. Yeah,
3: this is the one series where I, I tried to outsmart the conventional wisdom. I was like, like pretty much metastasized that, you know, the Nuggets weren't playoff ready. Maybe they didn't have the type of go-to crunch time scores because Jokic doesn't like to shoot sometimes and Jamal Murray so erratic. Mm-hmm. And that the Spurs, you know, they have all this veteran know-how that I don't know how to like really quantify. I was like, no, they can't be that. I think the Nuggets like have shown enough in the regular season. They're going to be fine. And then we played the game, and it was literally what everyone had been saying the entire time. Where down the stretch, Jamal Murray just like looked a little catatonic, and like he disappeared for huge stretches, which is not what you want for your second most important player on the team. And then he did have a
1: chance, though, right? I mean, he had a game-winning shot; he just missed it. They got to look. He
3: did, but then he, the turnover at the end, and then yeah. overall, he's just like over for 6 and 8 for 24 from the field. It's just like...
1: Not good.
3: You're the guy that really needs to step up because when Jokic is, is like shooting as much as Paul Millsap, who else are you turning to on that team? It looked at a lot of the times like Gary Harris was that guy, and I'd rather Gary Harris spotting up off of Jamal Murray kind of
1: picking rolls. After the game, Pop said that... Uh, he kind of gave LaMarcus Aldridge a pass because he said, you know, we didn't let... Jokic played the way he wanted and they didn't let LaMarcus play the way that we wanted and it was sort of a push as the series goes forward that's got to favor the Spurs right I mean if you're going to cancel out if you're going to trade LaMarcus for Jokic that's got to be a net win for the Spurs no
3: yeah I think the Spurs have enough just like with their system and then trust and pop just being able to kind of like outmaneuver some of the many flaws that I think the Denver Nuggets have I mean, there's a point where, like, Tori Craig was the most reliable shooter from the perimeter for the Nuggets. And it's just, like, not a good spot to be in, especially if you're the two seed. I am a little bit worried about the math problem that they kind of always find themselves in because they have all these kind of mid range guys, guys who, who are kind of like avoiding the arc at all, whatever they can. They only took 15 threes. And while they made seven of them, it's not the type of thing where you can make up when your opponent is, like, taking almost twice as many. So, if they're not hitting three point shots, the few that they take, I do wonder how they're going to keep up.
1: All right, last one for you before I let you go, because it's late here and you've got lots of stuff to do tomorrow. Uh, on this particular series, I, I'm fascinated by it. If you had a bet right now, who are you taking?
3: I'll say Spurs, just because I like I, it. I, I don't trust Jokic
1: at this point. I don't. I don't really trust him either. And it's it's crazy because they they had such a good year, and he was so good, and they were entertaining, and uh, they played well together, and they unearthed all these other useful pieces that they can bring in off their bench. And I've spent this whole last couple of weeks complaining about the Sixers not having a bench and the nuggets are the opposite. And yet net effect is the same. I think I'm with you. I think i take the Spurs.
3: Well, the Sixers have Boban. Let's be real here.
1: <laughs> I saw him. I told Isaac, I saw him dribbling. He was doing dribbling drills with two hands. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, great!
3: Uh, it was <laughs> right. be good for game two
1: point Boban. Here we come. Uh, he's Justin Barrier. Listen to him on group chat, hosting group chat with Paolo and Haley every Thursday, Justin. Thank you. Thanks guys. All right. That was Justin Verrier. He's excellent. Make sure to read him. Make sure to listen to him on group chat on Thursdays before we bring in Spike Eskin to break down the Sixers for us. Let me tell you about the watch of the night on Monday, TNT, 8 p.m. It's game two of the Nets and the Sixers. And Isaac, I don't know. I hope it goes better for the Sixers. Not to get too Mm rude here, but I hope it was better for the Sixers in the city of Philadelphia than game one did because game one was a disaster.
2: Not the best performance from your Philadelphia 76ers. I will say we saw 15 minutes of Boban, which is a win in my book.
1: Bobi, I saw him at practice today and he was doing handling drills. He was dribbling mm. two balls at the same time, one with each hand and very impressive. Like who knew Bobby had handles? And frankly, with the way that the guard situation is going for Philadelphia, both defending and uh, offensively, maybe Bobby is the answer at point guard. <laughs> I say run them out there. Point Bobon. Point Boban. If you lose game two, I think you got to try it. Uh, check that out. That's game two of the Nets and the Sixers on TNT at 8 p.m., followed by Isaac Lee's Clippers and Warriors game two on TNT. And remember, gang, if you want to watch every NBA game, subscribe to NBA League Pass on NBA.com or from your preferred video provider. Before we bring in Spike to go in-depth on the Sixers, let's do a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of Heat Check is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerNBA. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the website within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash ziprecruiter.com/ringer, RingerNBA. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Ringer, R-I-N-G-E-R-N-B-A. ZipRecruiter.com slash N B A. And now back to Heat Check.
0: He's heating
1: up. He's on fire. All right. Joining me on the other line, one of Philadelphia's favorite sons, one half of the rights to Ricky Sanchez
4: podcast. I can't believe this is his first time on heat check. It's Spike Eskin. What's up, man, John, I believe this is the first time I've been on any ringer podcast at all. I'd like to thank you for being supportive of the rights to Ricky Sanchez. Um, not everyone in your organization has been so nice to us. Several have, several have not. And I, I support you, John, and I support Heat Check. Thanks, buddy. Back at you. Before we continue with this conversation, because like
1: I've been on the East Coast back in my hometown for, I don't know, like 72 hours or so. So immediately I was just leaning hard into the Philly. And I texted you and said, like, we got to have you on the rookie. Let's talk about the first game. I expected it to be better circumstances. But about the ringer stuff,
4: just try not to get me fired. I had a good run. I wanted to continue. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I, would, I would do whatever I can not to get you fired. And you can edit out whatever you need to edit out.
1: <laughs> it's going to be just like 20 minutes of blank space. Yeah. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> um, all right. So that first game, not ideal, buddy. The Sixers lose at home to the Brooklyn Nets. 111 to 102. And it wasn't particularly close. I think like in the very opening moments of the game, Joel looked pretty good. He was feasting on Jared Allen. And I thought, oh, okay, this is going to go fine. Uh, You know, Embiid is playing. The Sixers are at home. They expect uh, good things in the playoffs. And then at some point I was sitting on press row and I, I turned to the guy next to me and I was like, hmm, it feels like the Sixers are up really big. And I looked up at the scoreboard and they were losing. And then that's the way the rest of the game went. They just got throttled.
4: Yeah. I mean, the talent disparity is pretty noted. So you wouldn't expect that would happen, especially in the home game when you're that heavily favored. But when you, I think when you take a step back, the context of all of it, when you look at everything together, it's really not all that surprising. I think the Sixers for the last month have looked like they were actively not caring, you know, and this is a team that has had the starting lineup at least has, or even the whole team has had very few games together to develop any sort of a rhythm. And bead has been out for a good portion of that. And bead also hurt, you know, and Ben yes. Simmons, his struggles in the playoffs and especially against the Celtics last year and against teams who sort of scheme for him have been noted. And all of those things happened on Saturday. So while you know, I didn't expect them to lose and I certainly didn't expect them to get run off the court, which they basically did. I, I think what happened is sort of less surprising if you take a wider view of it. So let's take the wider view before we bore
1: down on like these, because there's so many things I want to get into with you on this. It was just such a shit show and it started from the very beginning. And I think that, uh, this is a point that you and Mike Levin made on your post-mortem Game 1, Rights to Ricky, where you were talking. And this is a theme that's been talked about a lot, actually, in Philly since I landed, even before that, where these guys, these five starters that they want to assemble that they have super high hopes for, still look like they don't know how the other ones like to play. They don't know how to play with each other. I think that that's pretty natural, considering they only played 10 games together in the regular season. Game 1 of the playoffs was their 11th game together. And it's a theme that I've heard consistently about this team since I got here. And it just, like... At first I was like, okay, it's not that big a deal. They'll be fine. Now I think it's a pretty big deal. Like now I think like having seen it in action or not seen it in action, like I get why everybody was
4: worried. Yeah, if you look back into the history of the NBA and nobody here wanted to hear this, but when you look back into the history of the NBA, where are the teams who have made giant mid-season trades for important players depleting depth and then went to the finals? That doesn't happen. Teams don't make big, huge trades in the middle of the season and only play 10 games together and then just sort of talent their way to the finals. And they don't have, they're talented and their starting lineup is talented, but we can't act like they traded for Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, right? I mean, Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris are somewhere between the 20th and 30th best players in the league. So I hate when people do this because when we play basketball, meeting like you and I and regular people, as opposed to pros, it's Mm. a different thing. But when you think about pickup games and five on five, who ends up winning those games? Like the super talented team where everybody just met when they got there, or the team that runs at that playground every single weekend knows themselves, has the guy who knows where he's supposed to be, the hustle guy, the post guy, the point guard guy, who are actually running plays, you know, you're looking at each other. You're like, well, where do these guys come from? And those are the teams that win. And when you look at the playoffs, the, the strongest teams, I would say in the East have that. Milwaukee is essentially the same team as last year. Toronto actually has made significant changes, but the most significant one was before the season. You know, the Sixers, I'm sorry, I'm talking for a long time here, but the Sixers said that the reason that they, and please excuse my dog in the background, it's his birthday. No, I I love it. It's
1: Rebel's birthday. Happy Happy birthday, Rebel. Rebel, The baddest
4: good boy ever. Um, Mm -hmm. The Sixers continually said they were making these changes to optimize this year. And I just don't think that makes any sense. I think you could argue, I wouldn't, but you could argue that they raised the ceiling of the franchise by acquiring two high-level players, and that in the next few years, they're going to have to build around all these guys. I think you could make that argument. But to make the argument that it raised their ceiling this particular year, I don't think makes much sense at all. So this is a point
1: that you made. You actually wrote a post for, uh, in your day job, you run uh, 94WIP, the local sports radio station here. And you wrote a post saying that star hunting costs the Sixers potentially a chance at a deep runner at the finals. And I had Dan Pfeiffer on last week on heat Check, And Dan was doing some, you know, like I, I think like for people who aren't Philadelphians last year was sort of an anomaly in terms of how excited the fan base was, how positive everybody was. Uh, I think that part of that was like riding the high of the Eagles Super Bowl and like everything went well towards the end of the season with the 16 game championship. But our default natural position is worry if not panic. And so Dan was doing some pre post-season worrying. And then he texted me afterwards and he goes, I felt like I was being too negative, but then I read Spike's story. (laughs) And I think like you took some heat for that. And now I think like a lot of people feel the way that you did that, like, you know, they made these moves and I understand why they made them,
4: but there's something to be said for continuity. Yeah, it wins. It wins. I mean, I, I don't want to go too deep into Sixers history, but when you even look at that, you remember the last lockout season, the Sixers were one of the only teams that didn't make off-season adjustments. And they came into that season, and I think they started like 11-2 and two because they just had the same team as the year before. And I, I have to do this weird balance here because I care about the team, I care about their success, and I care about the fans and all of that, but we the the podcast has sort of painted Mike and I as these. Um, we were really positive when they were winning ten games. So then, when they were winning fifty games, and I'm being negative, it's, I think it makes people <laughs> mad at me. But yes, but but ultimately, I try to see things for what they are, and I I didn't want to ruin everyone's vibe by saying that this worries me. You know, the Butler thing worried me. The Tobias Harris thing worried me. All playing Joel Embiid. 40 minutes a game for the first two months of the season, playing in every back-to-back, all that stuff worried me. And I think you come off like this typical Philly worrywart. wart, or uh, I got a lot of, well, you just liked it better when they were losing. And I guess in some respects I did, uh, but I, well, only because I believed in why they were losing. And I think yeah. they can still wind up in the finals this year. But again, I- I don't know that everything they did this year, or I would, I would actually say that everything they did this year gave them a less of a chance of reaching the finals than if they had just, I mentioned in that article, I was like, instead of going after LeBron, what if they had just signed Trevor Ariza? What if they had traded for Miritich at the deadline? And what if they had signed Austin Rivers? And if you just kept the team from last year, added a, a wing defender who can hit threes, added a guy who can maybe score some points off the bench and added a stretch four guy. I don't know, with a team that won 52 games last year that already won a round in the playoffs that everyone, including Bill, was saying was the lock to go to a finals last year when the playoffs started. If you just added to that team, what is the argument that they couldn't get to the finals and why did they not have a better chance than this team does? in individual moves in a vacuum, I get why they did the things
1: that they did. Certainly on paper, like you have five guys where you go, this is a good team. They should make a deep run in the playoffs. Like Josh Harris said, and we're going to get to Josh Harris in a second. But my whole thing with this team has been how thin they are after that first five. And that still remains the case. But unless the first five guys are really playing well, then you're it's double jeopardy. I mean, it's even worse than, than you would expect because once you go to the bench, you're, you're super screwed. So now if your starters aren't playing well, then you're, you're behind before you even start, And that's what we saw in that first game. And like, I, and I want to, I want to like couch all this because like you said, they could, they could still turn this around. They could still do something in the playoffs, but it is a very Philadelphia reflex to watch one game and go, Oh man, we are fucked. <laughs> um, all right. So for the guys that did play, Jimmy played really well. And Bede's line was a monster line. Although there were moments when I didn't feel like he was playing super well. And he did say afterwards that he was tired and out of shape. And then beyond that, nobody played well. Tobias and JJ, who are arguably their two best shooters, had seven shots each. Ben Simmons, for long stretches of the game, was completely invisible. The whole team got booed. Ben got upset about them getting booed. Not a good look for those first five
4: guys. I mean, was there anybody aside from Jimmy that you felt good about? Boy, no. I mean, when the next guy on the list is Boban Marjanovic, that's troubling. I think the Embiid thing can be directly tied back to either the knee I think we're sure that the knee is far from 100% and the fact that he's been not playing for the last month to try to get the knee there so you have the combination of the knee injury plus being out of shape the nets are a team that you can use I I don't, don't want to talk too long about Bobon, but they're a team that you can use Bobon against and I think they did to some yes. success but but Redick is surely an all-time shooter but when he is not hitting shots the fact that he is currently an all-time bad defender becomes even more drastic. You see it more. And Tobias Harris is interesting. And I think when you, when you talk about putting this many players in the starting lineup, whose key benefit, like what they're best at is scoring points. You'd sort of have this situation where everybody is a little less valuable when they're all together. And if Tobias Harris is only going to shoot seven times, then the ability for him to really get it going is less because there's so many guys to take shots. Now, Harris has not been good. He hasn't shot well since he's been with the Sixers. I think he's shooting about 30% from three. But if mm-hmm. he's not going to hit open threes and he's not going to score points, and the same thing with Reddick, they're both minus defenders. You sort of wonder why they're even out there.
1: Yeah. Tobias, just like, in addition to the way that like Ben Simmons completely disappeared, that I had said this in our Slack as we were watching the game, I wrote about it. There were moments in the game, multiple moments in the game and and long moments in the game where I forgot that he was out there. Simmons. And then, and similarly Harris, the same deal, like he had seven rebounds and six assists, but I don't feel like he was influential in the game in any way. And you're right. Like you need those guys, uh, especially Harris and JJ to shoot. And I'm looking at the box right now. And beat had more threes than both of them. I mean, it's crazy. They made three threes out of 25 attempts. It was just a really poor, awful shooting night for them. And they just can't play that one. And conversely, as you mentioned defensively, this is something the Sixers have struggled with all year, but they get crushed by good guards, speedy guards. The Brooklyn Nets happen to have three guys who are both speedy and have a little bit of size to them. And between D'Angelo Russell walking into those mid-range shots and then Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis Levert off the bench, The Sixers didn't have any answer for them. I mean, like after Jimmy Butler, I don't know what you do there. And, and Brett was asked too. He was like, okay, well, what do you think? Like, will Jimmy Butler be the, the principal backup point guard to Ben Simmons? And he said, well, you know, I kind of think like we might might need to use TJ because TJ can be a pretty good pick and roll defender. And I'm like, okay, if that's the situation, then you're in a lot of trouble. I mean, they just don't have anybody to guard any, any of the uh, Brooklyn
4: Nets guards. Yeah. Well, and, I'm sure anyone who knows me has been waiting for the setting the timer on the Robert Covington clock, but, <laughs> yes. but he was the guy you've watched enough Sixers to know, even though Covington is a six, eight, six, seven, six, eight wing, he was the guy who they would stick on those guards. He was the guy that would guard Campbell Walker, or he's the guy that would guard whoever the lead guard was, whoever the best offensive player who wasn't a big was, was on the other team. You would put him on that guy. And um, they lost him, and their point of attack defense has gotten worse. Simmons, typically, this season has been better at it than anybody else they've had, but he was not good at it yesterday. And he's 6'10", too. You can't do that all game. So defensively, they didn't compete. And I do think, too, there is something to the fact, and I mentioned it on, on our podcast yesterday, again, to go back to all of these guys. Coming together for the first time. And Harris being an unrestricted free agent, Butler being an unrestricted free agent, Reddick being an unrestricted free agent, Mike Scott being an unrestricted free agent, all guys looking to get paid next year. And they've only been together for a couple of months. If they have to dig deep defensively and dive for loose balls, you sort of have to feel like you owe it to the other guys in the locker room too. It's not just about you. And you sort of wonder whether they've even been given a chance to develop that. So when Jimmy Butler goes home at night or Tobias Harris or JJ Redick and these guys go home at night, do they think I've got to risk my health a little bit? I've got to go all out and maybe be worried about getting hurt or whatever happens, or looking foolish or not getting to the ball for these other guys who I barely know, which might cost me several million dollars next year. And I think defensively you can look at individual skills like jj redick or tobias harris or all of those things but there have been teams in nba's history who are able to scheme around guys who can't guard you know tony parker couldn't guard you know manu ginobili couldn't guard all these guys were bad defensive players and they found a way and i think part of it is scheme and that's on brett but i think mm. part of it is just sort of effort and want to, as Andrea Godali used to say. And I, I don't think all of these guys are playing with the effort and want to defensively that they're going to need to be a finals team.
1: Yeah, I think part of that goes back to the conversation about continuity and chemistry and like them not having much time to gel. But you also mentioned Brett there. And I wanted to get into this a little bit because Brett might be the most divisive figure in Philadelphia at the moment. There are people like myself who are very defensive of Brett because one, I like him as a human being. And two, again, I'm not sure what he's supposed to do with the the bench that he has i mean when you're looking at options like banged up Jonah Bolton you've got Mike Scott who didn't play particularly well has played well previously but not particularly well Jonathan Simmons who's largely useless Boban, who, as you said, you can play him in this series at times, but they got 15 minutes out of him. And like when Boban is one of your better players or your third best player in a given night, you've got problems. TJ was getting picked on. And after that, you've got Zaire and Greg Monroe and Furkan and Monroe and Furkan didn't play. So I want to know, like, where do you stand on? on Brett, because there are a lot of people who don't like, for example, he got criticized for playing Jonathan Simmons last night. Jonathan Simmons did not look good. He was in minus 16. He only played 11 minutes. Somebody's got to eat up a couple of minutes and let the starters rest. So for me, I look at it and go, Brett's hands are tied. I don't know what people expect here.
4: I think you can look at it a couple of ways. First of all, I don't think most people are complaining about this when they're talking about Brett Brown, but he surely has a hand more of a hand than he used to in personnel decisions. For sure. So you can say, look, he's partly responsible for this. And I think he is. But simply as a coach, I think a lot of the, I I agree with you. A lot of the criticism of Brett comes from, if you're a fan, you think to yourself, well, what is easier for me to swallow? And what is easier for me to fix? Saying it's Brett Brown's fault because he's easily replaceable, right? Just in terms of you can fire a coach and hire another coach. Sure. Or is our whole team, have so many holes that regardless of what I do with the coach, it's not going to matter? That's a way more difficult question. And I don't think Fair. people are, want to deal with that, understandably. I think Brett deserves criticism for sure. But I, I thought the same thing about Jonathan Simmons yesterday. When the fight is, when the argument is, give Zaire Smith a chance, who has played yep. four NBA games or whatever this year, who three months ago, was 30 pounds less than he is today. (laughs) You know, who who they drafted as a, who looked good in his few games, but drafted as a project guy anyway. If your choice is, we can't wait until James Ennis gets back, but until then we have to play Zaire Smith instead of Jonathan Simmons. Those are like no
1: win choices. Yes. Yes. And that's what I said. Like, like I get that people look at Jonathan Simmons go, he's bad. He is bad. He has been bad. But Zaire Smith, look, who knows? Maybe you put Zaire in and, and he could give you a little something defensively. I haven't seen him play a game yet where I thought he looked like he knew what he was doing offensively. So I think it's a pretty natural impulse for a coach to go. I'm going to at least try the veteran to start, but I wanted to, this is where we get into the Josh Harris territory. And I'm curious to see what you think about this as well, because before the game, majority owner, Josh Harris gives a little press conference. He's asked a lot about a lot of things. And he, Josh is very good at like not answering things and deflecting. He said that they want to keep Tobias and JJ because those kinds of players are hard to get. And I understand that impulse. You also paid a lot for him. You'd want to retain them. It is hard to get those players. That makes sense. But when asked about Brett, the question was essentially, is Brett Brown going to be your coach regardless of what happens in the playoffs? And he was super non-committal about it. He basically said, you know, we have confidence in Brett and we're focused on the nets. And I thought that that particular time to give this surprise impromptu press conference and then like vote of no confidence on your coach, or at least a vote of like shoulder shrug confidence in your coach. Not ideal, necessarily.
4: No, I mean, Josh Harris, for everything he's good at and everything he's bad at, I wouldn't put public speaking like really close to the top of the good at list. So I think there is as much chance of him not knowing the right way to answer that question as anything else. But I would say that on the uh, bad at list as well, this ownership group, if there's one thing that I can identify as something that they have struggled with in the time they've owned it, is their inability to settle on who is making decisions and picking one person to be responsible for those decisions. And when they bought the team, it was, well, Doug Collins has final say. When then, well, mm-hmm. Rod Thorne kind of has final say. And also Tony DeLeo is the general manager. <laughs> and also Adam Aaron is there too. And then we, we pivoted and they, re- they replaced everybody. And then it was Hinky for a while, but then it was, well, what if Hinky and Brian Colangelo both were together, and then we get to this point where, when they fire Colangelo or whatever happened with Colangelo, they keep his entire staff, his entire staff, who is also responsible for the asset mismanagement of the last two years. So they keep everybody. They go through free agency and the draft with a a team of collaborators, which is not how you make this, You make decisions with collaboration and then one person making the choice. That's how it works. Collaborators again. Who's making these choices? And then when it comes down to they empower Brett Brown, which is, I think, part of the reason they hired a rookie general manager to head up a staff that they kept in place. Now, when it is time to say that this is the guy that we empowered six months ago and he is our guy and we're willing to move forward, they choose not to do it. It is, again, more of the same unable to commit for a long period of time to one sort of power structure and one person who has final say over those things. So that is the, he knew what he was saying answer though. I might, I might bet on the, he didn't know what he was saying answer.
1: Yeah. It's again, I would have just been like, maybe Josh doesn't need to speak right now. Right. All right. So before I let you go, you got a lot of stuff going on. I'm going to run over to practice. The Sixers came in heavy favorites in this series. ESPN's model had the Nets winning this just one in four times and uh, 538 gave the Nets just a 6% chance to win the series. My question is, what's your confidence level in the Sixers still winning the series? And did you feel any better that the Sixers weren't alone in getting upset? Toronto lost at home to Orlando, and Denver lost at home to the San Antonio Spurs. So three road dogs won on opening night of the NBA playoffs, which is super rare. And I, like part of me last night, as I'm watching that Denver game, goes, "All right, so the Sixers got some company here."
4: Well, it makes you feel better until, like, I think Toronto and Denver are frauds anyway. So so that <laughs> it makes it makes me feel less good. But uh, All right. I still think I'm I'm pretty confident they win the series, but. I thought they would win the series in five games if it takes them seven games to win the series. I don't know. I remember that Celtics team a few years back that ended up winning the, the title or even the Celtics team that got to the finals that beat Sixers in what, 2011 or 2012, had to go seven with a bad Sixers team to get to the finals. I think sometimes these series can be good and can galvanize a team, but I don't know if that'll be the case. I'm still pretty confident they'll win the series, but John, one in four I mean, the Sixers have won in the lottery with less than a one in four chance. So one in four chance is a pretty good chance of winning 6% not so good. I would bet on the Sixers winning this if I bet.
1: Yeah, I would like to believe that they would get back into the series. That first game, though, like changed everything about how I uh, look at these two teams, I mean, I, I thought that they'd have problems with those guards, but I didn't think they'd have that much of a problem. And then again, the bench I thought was going to be an issue and it was a bigger issue than anticipated. And then on top of that, the first five guys weren't good. And like, that was about as bad as it could possibly be, but we'll see if they can get it together for uh, game two on Monday night, before I let you go, is there anyone you want to unban from the ringer on
4: this podcast? before you leave. All right, John, I'm glad you gave me this chance. So as <laughs> you know, that we have a, a list of people who are banned on the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. It's Many a, of them ringer personalities. Well, we have recently unbanned Kevin O'Connor. Which was great. I was happy about that. Yep. And the ban list is named after screenwriter Mike Weber, who has never won an Oscar, uh, but he has harassed the commissioner <laughs> of the NBA. So uh, We love Mike. So we, we decided not to ban Dan Devine, even though we thought about it. Now, mm-hmm. you might cut this out, but here's what I would say about your boss, Bill Simmons. Um, okay, don't get me fired. I'm not, I'm not. Okay, so you're talking to somebody who has a, a book of basketball framed poster in his office, two autographed copies of his book, and he in the past has been banned. Now we unbanned him several months ago when he said the name of our podcast and my name on his podcast, but- That was we, like a provisional unbanning, right? Correct, a probationary measure. So he is, <laughs> he is on probation until May 14th. Awesome. May 14th, the night of the lottery. And the only way that he stays unbanned is if he invites Mike and I onto his podcast or, <laughs> okay. or he comes on our podcast and allows us to relitigate Sam Hinkey and the process with him because he was unfair. Otherwise, on May 14th, he will be banned again. He'll
1: be be rebanned. It's tough stuff. He's had a really good run in life
4: (laughs) and uh, and
1: career, but I think that this is a massive blow to him and and I wish him well. I hope he gets unbanned. Uh, Always say the name. It's the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. It's the one and only and the best Sixers podcast on the planet, along with Mike Levin. He is Spike Eskin. Buddy, we got to do this more. Yeah, anytime. Thanks to Spike Eskin. He was excellent. Make sure to listen to the Royce to Ricky Sanchez podcast before we go to Kevin Clark so he can be very excited about the Orlando Magic. Another quick word from our sponsors. Today's heat check is brought to you by Simply Safe Alarm, the Willies, the Heebie Jeebies, Panic, Anxiety. There are dozens of words for fear, but just one for exceptional home security Simply Safe. This is home security that knows it feels good to fear less. Award winning 24 7 protection that protects your home through it all blizzards, blackouts, and burglars. Simply Safe has won awards from all the tech experts that count. The Verge says it's the best home security. It's won Reader's Choice from PC Magazine. It's a two time winner of CNET Editor's Choice, and it's a wire cutter top pick. Better yet, Simply Safe has no contract, no hidden fees, and no gotchas. They keep their prices always fair and honest. Beer has no place in a place like home. Try Simply Safe today with free shipping and free returns. You'll get a 60-day risk-free trial. Order now, and you have your home protected within a week at SimplySafe.com/NBA. That's SimplySafe.com/NBA. Be sure to go there so they know we sent you. Today's heat check is also brought to you by Ship, guys. If you're ready for a new way to date online, listen up try ship. That's S H I P. I hear it's awesome. It's 75% women right now. So your odds are also awesome. And in addition to searching for someone special on your own, you can recruit your in a relationship or married friends to join your crew and help you date. That's what's going to happen with me and Isaac. I'm married. He's single. He's going to recruit me. I'm going to help him date Isaac. I'm sure you feel super excited about that. It's going to work because it's ship. Ship is the new dating app that lets your friends set you up. Here's how it works. If you're single, you sign up and you invite your friends to join your crew. And if you're not single, you just sign up and invite a single friend that you want to find matches for. Then you start looking for matches either for yourself or for your friend. The best part is there's a group chat so you and your friends can look at people's profiles together, strategize on what your opening line is going to be. I'm going to loop my wife in on this one just to be safe. Dating is more fun if you do it with your friends. Download Ship for free at getshipcom NBA and start today. That's getshipped.com NBA. And now, back to Heat Check.
0: Boom, shakalaka! He's heating up! He's on fire! All
1: right, joining me on the other line, the name of the show here is Heat Check, and he's coming in hot. It's a staff writer, covers the NFL, but really, he's Orlando's favorite son, magic number one fan. It's Kevin Clark. How are you feeling? I'm pumped and jacked. Both pumped and jacked. Well, that's Kevin O'Connor coined
0: that phrase, and I'm stealing it. Because it really applies to me. I'm excited about a team I love for the first time in seven years, maybe eight years. I mean, they kind of limped to the playoffs in 2012. Dwight was hurt. They played the Pacers. They kind of mailed it in a little bit. So we're really going back maybe nine years since I've been excited about the Orlando Magic. Everything I've done in the last nine years when I'm rooting for them has been dripping in irony. And now it's very sincere. And I don't know what to do with my hands.
1: You You went from irony to earnest. And it's really an incredible transformation for those who somehow missed it. The Magic were one of three teams on the opening day to Mm. get a road upset win. They went to Toronto and beat the Raptors, which we'll get to in a second. The Raptors continue to be bad in the playoffs. which is kind of crazy. I'm shocked that this happened for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that the hero of the game was DJ Augustine, who not only scored 25 points, but also hit the game winner. Kawhi had a chance to tie the game and send it to overtime. Instead, he missed and shot an air ball. You then today, before I had you on the pod, to tell us about how excited you are and how you don't know Mm. what to do with your hands. You tweeted out the following. I'm just going to read this. Yeah. It is amazing that the two greatest athletes of our lifetimes, Tiger Woods and DJ Augustine, are competing at such a high level this weekend. We are lucky to witness it. Again, two of Orlando's favorite sons. I'm just going to turn it over to you. He checks yours. Tell me about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was tough to put Tiger in the same breath as DJ Augustine, but, you know, (laughs) Tiger performed so well on Sunday that you kind of have to put him in that conversation. I was. Shocked? I didn't watch the game with anybody but my wife, and that's kind of atypical in those situations. I thought we were going to get slaughtered so much that having people over would have been a mistake. That's how discouraged I was about the matchup. I think that there were a lot of matchups on the board that I would like the magic in. I think we would have gone deep into a series with the Sixers. You know, we lost a tiebreaker with the Nets for that sixth seed. Uh, I think we would have had a good chance against the Celtics, who we swept during the regular season. And so when we drew Toronto, I was very, very pessimistic. And... I don't remember being more shocked. I mean, I, I didn't think it was going to happen until the last three went in, until that top of the key wide open. By the
1: way, do the Raptors have a coach? Yeah, well, they got rid of the one who won the Coach of the Year Award, Dwayne Casey. And now they have Nick Nurse, who's supposed to be really good. Well, I, he was supposed
0: to, and I saw two things from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is he has a bunch of patches inside of his jacket. <laughs> that was the one thing I saw. Your anti-patch. I'm certainly not pro-patch. Okay. I'll say that. It's a
1: radical middle of the road in patch position that you've staked out.
0: We had a Marc Gasol crunch time corner three that didn't go. Not exactly the most high percentage shot when you have Kawhi Leonard sort of driving at that point. And then DJ Augustine just wide open at the end. I don't know if you've known this. One of the hallmarks of the magic for the past seven years is that we can't make shots. Yeah, Ever. I've heard about that. Ever. And the fact that DJ was wide open like that, he probably, along with Terrence Ross, I guess Fournier, when he's in a groove, there are very few guys you can't leave open on the Magic, and that's, he's one of them.
1: A lot of things that you just threw at me there. Normally, I would have pushed back on your Sixers slander because before the series started, you were in our slack being uh, yourself saying that you were (laughs) that you were you would much rather have faced the Sixers, which I thought was madness. But considering what happened, I checked the scores. The Magic won their first game. The Sixers did not. Maybe you were right. Also,
0: well, no, what what I said, I'm sorry. I just want to clarify. I'm actually anti airing out of Slacks here, but I do want to clarify what I said in Slack. Please. I said I wanted to play the Sixers so that we could play the Celtics in the second round.
1: Yeah, so you had a whole thing. You had it all scheduled. You were ready yeah. to go. You, you had a path yeah. for them to get deep into the playoffs and now you might do it anyway because uh, apparently they're just going to sweep the Raptors. But before we get into the matchup with the Raptors and, and, and how you feel about it like moving forward in the series, I think it's fair, even warranted, that the last time that you appeared on this program, we did it as uh, a lark and made fun of your team, the Clippers, and the Kings, all of which had resurgent seasons. The ringer curse is real, or at least the heat check well, version Wait, is. hold on. That's not true. I came
0: on after we beat the Sixers in Jimmy Butler's first game. Did you come on then? I did. I did. I went to the game. Oh, so yeah, that's, I, right. I called yeah in, that's right. I called in from a jubilant Orlando because mm-hmm. Terrence Ross just took over that game. And so, I mean, yeah, it, it was an amazing season. Again, like, Something that struck me as, as odd is when Orlando was a much different city 10 years ago, and the StubHub prices to get in for Game 3 and Game 4 this year are higher than what I sold my extra finals tickets for 10 years ago. Are like you going? Oh, I'm going, yeah. I'm not paying. I'm not Stub. I have friends who have season tickets, but I'm going to Game 4 on Sunday. Look at you. This I have is- a wedding to go to on Friday. And so I can't go to game three, unfortunately. I've tried logistically to work that out. just not going to happen. However, I was thinking about this today. Game three might be a little too lit for me. Like, I, I if I was going to game three, the first home
1: game we've had in seven years, I might be too pumped
0: and jacked. I might, I might just gas out.
1: You're going to have to pace yourself because being pumped and jacked, you you burn a lot of fuel, but it seems like the entire (laughs) city of Orlando is pretty pumped and jacked. And I, and I want to get into this because I was of the position again, I will stipulate the wrong headedness of all of this, that this was not the year for Orlando to really try to fight into the playoffs and, and be in that six, seven, eight seed grouping, which is where they ended up. I thought that it made more sense for them to sell off Vucevic at the trade deadline. They did mm-hmm. not. I thought it would be another year of player development. And then you worry about it next year. All of these things that decided yeah. to go the other way. And the reason, among others, I had heard from people all over the league all year long was that the Magic, the organization, very much wanted to make the playoffs again. And Orlando, the city, very much wanted them to yeah. make the playoffs again. And so can you explain this to me? Put it into perspective why you were so desperate for the protracted, interminable rebuild to just end and then finally get back in the playoffs? Okay,
0: so there's a couple of things. Number one, I don't know if anybody saw it. I'm sure you did not. There were some watch parties downtown. Like we have a plaza called Wall Street and a lot of people got together and and watched the games over the weekend. And there was a real energy there. And I was really happy to see that because when you're in the doldrums for so long, you, you just don't know who's out there. You know, you just don't know if the city can come together again. And I was surprised to see that. And so that's what ownership wanted. And that's what the city wanted. And I think that the the other part of this, John, is that like, we've seen what tanking brings, okay? Like, we tanked for six years and we kept getting the second or fourth or fifth pick. We kept getting someone like Mario Hazonia where where we think he's the future and he's not. You know, Oladipo was obviously a very fine player for us. We shouldn't have traded him away. But the results of a long tank... We're very, very discouraging. And I think that one more year of tanking when everybody, even though the path of tanking is the smartest one, we've been burned by the tank. We're done with the tank. We're going to try to build with the guys we have. Mo Bamba is probably our last lottery pick for a couple of years. I, I don't necessarily see us going forward as sort of a two or three seed in the next couple of years, but I do see us getting progressively better with the core we have. And I think that's what ownership is after because look, we tried to bottom out. It did not work. And so we like where we are. I mean, the city just needed something like this. We don't really have much else. We have an MLS team that we're very excited about, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it's an
1: MLS team. You can claim Tiger again. Now Tiger lives in Jupiter now, dude, that's still Florida, right? Yeah. That's uh, all the same yeah. <laughs> for those, Beach County. for those of us who do not live in Florida,
0: same deal. Yeah. But no, I mean, like, I really like going to the MLS games and all that stuff. But the difference between uh, Orlando City and the Magic is very big. And, you know, they had to have something going for them. UCF doesn't really rally. The, it rallies a huge portion of the city, but you still have a lot of Florida, Florida State, Miami fans. So it's not the galvanizing thing. This was what the city needed. And I think everybody involved with the Magic organization sort of knew that.
1: What do you think? This is sort of a two pronged question, but it goes together. One, what do you think the ceiling is for this team? Mm. And two, would you be okay if getting rid of the tank years, turning away from that, trying to be a playoff team every year, ultimately nets you out like just sort of an average to slightly above average team that's in the mix and relevant and like making the postseason in the East? Is that good enough for you? Yeah,
0: for right now. I mean, I think that are any of our players going to develop into super duper stars? I don't know. Is Jonathan Isaac going to make a leap and to you know, become a top 10 guy? I don't know. I'd rather have this and climbing our way up. All of a sudden, we're a five seed, a four seed, maybe a three seed in a good year in a couple of years. I'd rather have that than going back to the drawing board and tanking because I just can't. I mean, I don't think people really get it. If you have one team you like, and, and that's true of me, mm-hmm having to basically write off sports is very, very bleak. Like I have not earnestly again with the, the word earnestly is coming up again. I've not earnestly rooted for a team. Like, you know, I had to root against them for like three years. Yeah. You I know, and, and not only that, but not only that, but you're rooting against them because you think that, like, Andrew Wiggins or Jabari Parker are going to save the franchise. I mean, that's the other thing is you get burned. It's almost like when I used to follow college football recruiting and it's like, oh, man, can't wait to this get this guy Arthur Brown. And then Miami gets him and he's like, <laughs> he transfers, you know, a year and a half in. So, you know, you also get burned by even this these false sort of profits where – so – I'd much rather have this just from an emotional standpoint. I understand thinking sort of critically and thinking practically, it's probably better to tank, but I just want to like basketball again. Is that so crazy?
1: Well, I mean, considering that I'm from Philly and, and spent years advocating on behalf of the tank principle to yeah. my mind. Yes. Uh, also <laughs> like I've had many conversations with the rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast and, and spike is on this episode where it was like, you know, that made sense to us right like academically this approach makes sense and also there's like an odd like comfort in it because you know that the season is inverted and the wins and losses don't matter it just matters about like how you're positioning yourself in other areas like you know picks and cap space and uh how you can grow your assets and it's like a totally different game you're playing and to a certain extent there's like a lot less pressure there
0: yeah but i mean i'd rather have Pressure than nothing fun to watch for years at a time. Yeah.
1: No, there's a case to be made pressure for Pressure can be a good thing. Dare to dream, John. Dare to dream. This is something I've talked to Ian Carmel about, about like, uh, you know, uh-huh. like the Blazers being a very good but not great team during uh, like the Dame years and he's cool with that because they're in the mix every year and they're you know they're relevant and they're fun to watch and the experience is good at the arena and I like I get it it hasn't been that way in Orlando for a while so like this has got to be a really fun yeah. exciting season for you they have decisions to make though because like th- at yeah. some point like this year it worked out for them like the whole like simultaneous mm. player development and try to make the playoffs thing but then they've got decisions to make about like you mentioned Mobamba. who they took, I think, six overall. Now, what do you do with Vooch? Terrence Ross. Yeah, Yeah, Terrence Ross. Terrence Ross,
0: yeah. I mean... What would you do with Vooch? I don't know. I mean, I think that... I I was talking to some folks down there during the season, and they were saying that Vooch becoming an all-star, while a good thing, certainly a good thing, we're pro-Vooch becoming an all-star, that was not in in the plans. We didn't expect that sort of development, so you draft a Mo Bamba. You have that front court there with Jonathan Isaac. Obviously, you're, you're planning on building around Aaron Gordon. He's under contract now. And so... It's very strange. I don't know what you do. I still like Mo Bamba. I certainly like Jonathan Isaac. I guess you see if Vooch wants to sort of stay home on a very manageable contract. If not, you start looking at other things. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be opposed to letting him walk. And the reason is because he's the focal point and has been the focal point of kind of a bad team. He is our most efficient player. I think he was. Uh, for a long time, you know, he led our team in effective field goal percentage and all that stuff. But I don't think you're exactly going to be a top four team if Vooch is your best player. And I think there's ways forward that don't involve him. So I trust the front office. I haven't said that. Oh my God, when was the last time I said I trust the front office? I don't even know. Because Hennigan, obviously not. Well, they haven't written down a bunch of stuff on a whiteboard and exposed it to the world in, in months. Otis Smith, certainly not. John Weisbrod, certainly not. So I don't know. I cannot tell you the last time I trusted a Magic front office. And I don't, again, don't know how to react. I'm
1: very happy for your transformation here. Uh, I am, however, going to try to pit you against your two favorite organizations before I get to your confidence level in the rest of the series. Here's what I have a question for you. So the the magic, obviously they were on a heater towards the end of the season. It got them into the playoffs, got them the seven seed. I didn't think they were going to make it. I believe we had the same record as the Raptors in the last 30 games. They were really, really good. They won 22 of their last 31 games. And Mm -hmm. Steve Clifford, your guy, was asked about this and said, hey, you know, like, you guys were hot towards the end of the regular season, and then you come in and you beat the Raps on their floor, and do you see any connection there? And he said, I think it helps. We've been playing games that we had to win and were meaningful games for a while, except Uh the ringer, Zach Cram, wrote a piece where he did the Zach Cram bit, and he looked at the numbers, and he found no connection between playing well late in the regular season and advancing in the playoffs and playing well in the playoffs. He said that that's just sort of apocryphal. So now I'm going to make you pick sides. Which side are you on? Are, here? You, are, on my, are the- you
0: saying my two favorite organizations are the magic and Zach Cram, the
1: ringer, but sure. Zach Cram, Zach no, Cram's Zach an Cram insi- specifically. Zach Cram is yes. an institution unto himself. I love Zach. Yes. That's my guy. All right, let's do that. So you have to pick between Steve and Zach and you can only have one. <laughs>
0: I think uh, game one speaks for itself. I love Zach Cram, <laughs> but game one speaks for itself. So first of all, I need to sort of rectify this. So I, I like Mobamba, mm-hmm. but Kem Birch fit better in the second half of the season. I, Mo Bamba is going to end up being a better player than Kem Birch. He's a better prospect, all that stuff. But Birch brought something to the magic that they didn't have. I, I also want to say that there's a toughness that's developed with this team. And I think that one of the failures of the Hennigan era was there just wasn't, there weren't a lot of jerks. And I I do think you need a couple jerks. And I'm not calling Michael Carter Williams a jerk, but him tearing down, and just freaking out on the refs gave us, I mean, I don't, I didn't see the stats there, but they gave us a little boost. Like he was hot. That got our team hot. And I did, you know, sometimes you have to believe in things that go bump at the night. I believe in intangible some of the time. And I kind of feel like there's a toughness that's developed around the team that we didn't have in the Hennigan era. We didn't have in the Vogel era. I'm pro
1: this team's chemistry right now. I am super happy, by the way, that you mentioned MCW because in the course of this bizarre season for the Magic, they went and got MCW at the end of the year. And now he's there. And they also have Markel Fultz. And if you want to see the end of Philadelphia, forget about them potentially losing the series to the Nets. If somehow like the Orlando Magic squeeze usefulness out of mcw and Mark Fultz. that'll be the end of the city like everybody will board up and close it down and it had a good run but that's the end
0: that would be amazing i really don't have any ill will towards philadelphia but i do have ill will towards all 29 nba franchises
1: i like that you're a magic fan first and foremost and only uh, all right so what do you really believe about this series before i let you go so they go and they they win a game. And I remember not to bring every, all roads lead back to Philadelphia, but they kind of do. I'm old enough to remember when the Sixers go to the finals with Allen Iverson and they win that first game in LA and it's the Ty Lu step over game. And I'm telling myself and my buddies are telling each other and everybody in the city is saying to each other, they're going to win the series. And then they lost four straight. Uh, before this series started with the Orlando Magic and the Raptors, ESPN gave your Orlando Magic a 20% chance to win, 538, less excited about their prospects, gave them only a 10% chance to win. However, they're up 1-0. So what do you think? Like, how much do you really believe here? So that is not the comparison
0: I was going to make. Tell me. In 2009, the Orlando Magic, an overwhelming favorite, hosted a little team called the Philadelphia 76ers. Mm. and Andre Iguodala, Hit a game winner. Do you remember this? Sure. I was thinking more of this. We're the Sixers now in the situation, and the Raptors are the Magic. Stay with me here. <laughs> um, and so, I think that sometimes these things just happen. The Raptors are a much better team. Again, I was, as I said, I was discouraged when I saw the when I saw the draw, and, and when I look at, there's no real matchup advantage for us. I don't really see a way where we say, okay, if we nail this, whatever, you know, it's, we're not the greatest shooting team in the world. I just don't think there are many paths forward. So I think if we play this series 10 times, I think nine of those 10 times, the Raptors win and practically everything points to the Raptors. Having said that magic and six, <laughs>
1: I hope it happens. I really do. Although, poor Toronto. If that happens, if they lose to the Magic in the first round, that's it. Same deal as with Philadelphia. Just shutter all of Toronto. That'll be the end for them. But uh, we'll figure that out later on. What's up with the Leafs? Are the Leafs in the hunt? That's the hockey team. I know all about them. Yeah. They're, uh, they are a team that plays hockey. I think I'm Mike Babcock is coach now. He's pretty good, all right? I will take your word for it. You are my expert on all things Orlando Magic and then all things Canada.
0: Okay, They lost to the Bruins
1: yesterday, Mm 4-1. So tough look for Toronto. Next week will be Heat Check Hockey Talk with Kevin Clark in the interim. In which which I just Google results and the names of coaches. (laughs) I'll just turn over a 20-minute segment to you in the middle of the podcast. It'll be (laughs) perfect. Kevin Clark, read all his stuff on the Ringer.com. He's excellent. Kevin, thanks for doing this. Congratulations. I'm happy for you. We deserve it. Thank you, John. All right. We thank Kevin Clark. We thank Spike Eskin. We thank Justin Verrier, of course, Isaac Lee as well. And we thank all of you for listening to Heat Check. Please rate and review us on iTunes if you would be so inclined and read all of our content on TheRinger.com. And look, it's playoff season. It's time to go. We've got all of your NBA postseason needs right here on The Ringer NBA Show. You get Mismatch on Tuesdays. Guess what? We switched up the schedule Corner three has been moved to Wednesday's group chat on Thursdays. And then Isaac and I will be back Sunday night from Monday. Thanks so much for listening gang for Isaac. I'm gone. See ya.